So I doubt that his followers enjoyed much rest on that particular Sabbath. They had just been witness to the most heinous act in the history of the world. The crucifixion of the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Tried and falsely accused for the capital crime of blasphemy. And yes, he had said that he brought with him the kingdom of God. And yes, he did say that he had the ability to forgive sins, the authority to bring the forgiveness of sins. And yes, he had said that he was the son of God. But it ain't blasphemy if it's true. These men and these women, they had heard all the witnesses. They had heard all the testimony from the moment of his birth, from the stars in the sky, to the angels in a field, to the wise men from afar, the Father, the Spirit, all bearing witness to the fact that this was the Christ. This was the Son of God. This was the one that had come to take away the sins of the world. And in addition to those witnesses, there had been so much evidence, signs and miracles and just proof lived out before their eyes that Jesus is who he says he is and his message is true. Salvation is here. Salvation isn't found in keeping a bunch of rules. Salvation isn't found in religion. Salvation is found in a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And his gospel message is if you would just believe in me, if you would turn from your sins and you would trust in me, follow me, you will find salvation. Forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. And these people had done exactly that. But the week had been such a blur. After years of rejecting the call to take up the crown, he was finally starting to act like a king. Cleansing the temple. Flipping over tables. Riding into town with great pomp and circumstance. Speaking about his kingdom. He was finally starting to look like a king, but yet the whole time he was talking about this, he continued to point towards his death. He continued to talk about the fact that he was going to lay down his life. And then when the moment came and he was tried and he was accused, he didn't even fight back. He didn't even strike a blow. He didn't even open his mouth in defense. And now he's dead. Now he's dead and he didn't even fight back. But somehow the whole time, he seemed to be in complete control. It was the Jews that accused him. It was the Romans that were leading him to the cross. And yet at all points, he was calm and in control like he was calling the shots. Like he was directing the whole thing. And as calm and in control as Jesus seemed, his followers were anything but. In the fury and the excitement, just the chaos of the day, they had run and fled. They had hid. How can we be so weak? How can we be so pitiful? How can we fall away so quickly? But no, if, if we would have stayed there, we would have died too. And what good would that have done? He told us not to fight back. He told us not to swing our sword. So who would it have helped if we'd have stayed there and died with him? So, so no, maybe we're, supposed, maybe we're supposed to run. But now that Jesus was dead and buried in that tomb, they hid. They hid in great fear. What fools. They had followed a man that walked straight into the grave. And now they themselves, they were as good as dead. So then the next day, before the sun comes up, some of the women decided that they were going to go and, and visit the tomb. 
They were going to take spices there, and they were going to care for Jesus' body. The spices that would help to keep the odor down, and it would show proper respect for their fallen friend. And as they walked that way, they knew that there was a stone rolled over the tomb, and so maybe somebody there could deal with it. They, they knew that the Romans had placed some guards there in front of the tomb, and so maybe one of them would be kind enough to roll away the stone. They didn't know his God had already taken care of it. Sending one of his holy angels, like a flash of lightning, he shone. So much so that the guards fell down like dead men. And that then with the sound of an earthquake, the stone was rolled away. Not so that Jesus could escape, mind you. Because in his resurrected body, Jesus wasn't going to be held back by something like a stone. The reason that God moved that stone was the same reason he had used his creation to form, to form so many supernatural acts all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. It was so that the ladies could look in. God uses his own creation in supernatural ways, miraculous ways, he uses his own creation to give evidence to that which he has done, to the spiritual, to the reality that Jesus was the Savior and that he had been risen. That was the purpose why he had, why he had moved that stone away. So as the women arrive there, they're greeted by the angel, and the angel gives them the good news. He is not here. He is risen. Now go tell the others. We're not going to keep this message just among you few women here. Go and tell the others. And now... The timeline can get a bit confusing here, but we do know that Mary Magdalene, Magdalene was there. And we do know that she stayed behind to weep there for a moment. And then she heard a voice. said, woman, why are you crying? And then her, then her name, Mary. It was Jesus. And he was there. Really there. This wasn't a ghost. This wasn't a vision. This wasn't a dream. He was there, and she could hug, hug his neck. She could feel his body. And he gives her the same message. You've got to go tell the others. This isn't just for you. You've got to get back and you've got to go tell the others. And that's where we pick up this morning's text. So I invite you there in your home. Stand to your feet, please, as we read together. We're going to be in John's gospel this morning. We're in the 20th chapter, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. All God's people said, amen. Father God, we, uh, we plead with you now. 
Would you make this book live to us? In it, would you show us yourself? Would you show us ourself? Would you show us our Savior? Would you make this book live to us? For it's your son's precious name we pray. Amen. I pray that you find great hope in this passage. I know that I do. And it began like this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were in fear of the Jews. See, these men had committed their lives to follow Jesus wherever he went. You may remember as we studied the story of Lazarus back in John 11, that Jesus had left from the region of Jerusalem out of Judea because they had already tried to kill him once. They already attempted to take his life. So as he went away and he heard news that his friend had become sick, he looked to the disciples and he said, let us go back, knowing that he was going to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead, knowing that that was going to be the kickstart to all that we've celebrated this week. His disciples knew that to go back meant certain death. These people had already tried to take your life once. How much more so if you return now? And you may recall the, the fatalistic words of Thomas as he said, let us also go that we can die too. They're willing to die. Or the words of James and John's mom, Salome. She was one of the women that was there at the, at the tomb. But James and John, they, they send their mommy to Jesus. And he asked, she asked him, Jesus, when, when you come into your kingdom, would you place my boys at your left hand and at your right hand? And telling her, woman, you don't know what you're asking for. Your boys don't know what it means. And this is what he said in Matthew 20, verse 22. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. Then a little bit later at the Lord's Supper, as he's preparing them for his death, he's preparing them for what lies ahead. You remember the words of Peter. As he says, Lord, even if I must die, I will not deny you. And all the others nodded their head. They all agreed too. See, these people, they had committed. They were going to whatever the cost, even if it meant their life, they were going to follow Jesus all the way to the end. But now, the first day of the week, they're hiding in a locked room. Like a bunch of cowards. They're hiding away in a locked room. Can you imagine the shame? How quickly, just like that, they had turned and run. And it wasn't that they hadn't heard the good news. See, Luke's gospel tells us this in verse 24. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things. That's the things that they saw at the tomb. Who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. And he saw the linen cloths by themselves, but he went home marveling at what had happened. So they had reported back. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15, we know that Peter also had his own viewing, his own vision, his own, his own encounter, his own interaction with the risen Savior. So these people came, and they had reported this news back to the other, the other uh, disciples hiding there in the upper room. But here's the thing. Fear is a powerful motivator. So much so that they couldn't believe the testimony of these people that they trusted and knew. Think about it. Mary Magdalene, she knew Jesus as well as any of them. She had been with him through all of this. They knew that she was a woman that could be trusted. They knew that she was a woman that would have known Jesus if she saw him. And yet the testimony of her and these other women that they trusted, it couldn't sway them. What about James and John? They wouldn't believe their own mother? Or Simon Peter? He was one of them. And he came back and gave them this testimony and still, 
What about the words of Jesus himself when he told them, I'm going to lay down my life, but in three days' time you shall see me again. They'd seen evidence of the fact that he could raise Lazarus from the dead. They'd seen everything they needed to see and heard everything they needed to hear to know that Jesus was alive, and they couldn't. This is the nature of fear. It can cause you to doubt that which you believe to be gospel truth just three days before. That in a moment of panic, things that you swore your life to will cause you to flee and cause you to doubt and cause you to deny. So that's where they are. But I want you to hit pause on this for a minute and then flip over with me to the book of Acts. The guys aren't hiding anymore. They're not in fear anymore. And so I'm going to take you to Acts 2 here. And they're out there and the, and, and the men are they're now preaching the resurrection. They're preaching the reality that Jesus wasn't just crucified, but that he was raised again. And I'll read to you Acts 2, verse 23 through 24. Now here's Peter, the same Peter that was hiding with the other jokers in the room. Acts 2, 23 through 24. This Jesus, these are the words of Peter, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it is not possible for him to be held by it. You see, the, the resurrection was the crux of everything. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then his message was a lie. Then he truly was a blasphemer. And we're to be pitied among all other men for believing a lie, believing a hoax, being found dead in our sin even to this death. The resurrection was the crux. It was the key to everything. And so these men were out there and they were boldly proclaiming that. But why the sudden boldness? Had the Jews just given up their persecution? Had the Jews decided, you know what, there's no way to win this battle, so just let those guys go. Dear friends, that's not the case. We see that they continue to arrest them. They continue to harass them. And then as they call Peter and John in, here's what we read. Acts 4, 17 through 20. In order that, this, in order, in order that it, and the it is this gospel news, the news of the resurrection. In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak to no one in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of, except for of that which we have heard. What changes here? From dudes hiding in an upper room, terrified for their life, to standing before the same men that had had Jesus crucified, looking, in the, looking them in the eye and saying, you think we fear you? You're God. Whether it's right that we obey you or obey God, you can decide, but we're just going to go with what we know. What we know is that God has raised his son from the dead. And what we know is that we fear this God way more than we would ever fear you. So do your worst, but you cannot shut us up. It's a pretty dramatic change. And not much time. So what gives? Well, church, it appears to me that whatever happened there in that upper room must be key. Whatever happened there in that upper room, the text that we just read, there must be something there that is an absolute, absolute key to understanding this change in these men's lives. And that perhaps we, as the church, can experience some of that same change, can preach with that same boldness, can cast away that same level of fear, if we can rightly understand this. Perhaps we can get up out of this place and walk out with otherworldly confidence, the kind of confidence that we see and we praise, in the life of the early church. And so, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked 
Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. So the door was locked. And there's, there's, there's plenty of good, solid Bible preaching um, teachers that will tell you that what happened was an angel must have unlocked the door and let them in. And that's not out of the question. We, we know that there was a time when the disciples had been arrested and they were locked behind chains there in Acts 5. And what we find is that an angel came and opened the door and the men walked right out. So could that have happened? Sure. But dear friends, I don't think it was necessary. Just as the resurrected Jesus was not going to be held back by a stone, he wasn't going to be held back by a door. Just as he could walk through that, the stone guarding that grave, a door was nothing. That's not something we need to fight about. It's not something we need to break fellowship over. But I, I do think we need to be very careful about imposing our own limited understanding of what a resurrected body can do and our own physical limitations on this heaven-prepared body of Jesus Christ. But he was there. He was right there among them. The doors were locked. They look up, and suddenly Jesus is there. Uh-oh. Won't he be furious? They'd abandoned him. They'd swore lo- they swore loyalty to him. They had pledged allegiance to the very end. They were going to walk with him, even up to a death. And now they were hiding in a room. They had fled from him. He had told Peter beforehand that he was going to deny him. He wasn't surprised when it happened. He knew exactly what would happen at this moment. And now he shows up and he sees these people here. And they've got to be trembling. He's here. He can't be happy. And I've got to confess to you, church, that's my greatest struggle. That's where I live. In this place of feeling like if Jesus Christ were to show up physically right here in this room, I would run and hide in a closet instead of running to cling his neck. See, I, I, there was never a time in my life, I grew up in a Christian home, and there was never a time in my life, not, at least not that I can remember, that I didn't know that God was there and that God was real. And, and there was also never a time in my life that I can remember, at least intellectually, that I didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ, and that salvation was found in repentance and placing my faith in him. But the problem is that when I looked at my own life and I saw the depravity there, I thought, surely if Jesus is there and Jesus is real, he, he must have nothing but contempt for me. He cannot love me. He cannot come to me in peace. If he comes to me, he must be coming to me to destroy me because I know that I don't like what I see in the mirror. So how can he, how can he come to any conclusion other than I'm a man to be despised? And so again, if he would ever show up, I, I can imagine myself running and hiding in fear rather than running to cling his neck. You see, apparently, I struggle because I look at my own wretchedness. Or perhaps I doubt the goodness of God. But ultimately what I find is the problem in my theology, the problem in my fear before Jesus, is that I've somehow fallen for the lie that my relationship with him and the love he has for me is based on my performance. Based on how well I live up to him. And so I judge like the world judges. I look at myself. I've got a man-centered gospel. That his love for me is driven by my obedience to him. That his love for me is driven by my love for him. That his love for me is driven by how far am I willing to go for him. That's not what the gospel teaches us. We're going to explore that today. But I find myself as one that cowers in fear at at the thought of Jesus actually showing up. Instead of envisioning him as bringing peace to me, I see him as bringing nothing but destruction because I've gotten wrapped up in this very same man-centered gospel. Jesus came, and he stood among them, and he said to them, 
peace be with you. Peace, shalom in Hebrew. It's a deep word. It's a deep word that's a deep desire. It's a desire for peace. Peace with each other and peace with God. And these guys, they must have felt everything other than peace in that moment. The Jews were out to get them. Now the one that they had uh, betrayed and denied was standing there in their midst. By every earthly standard, this was anything other than peace. And yet Jesus doesn't offer peace the way that the world offers peace. He doesn't keep score. He doesn't reckon peace the way that the world reckons peace. And we remember there in the upper, upper room on the night before his death when he said this, John 14, 27, Peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, I don't give peace the way that the world gives peace. You see, the, the way that the world offers peace, it's hanging by a thread. They offer you peace as long as you're at peace with them. They offer you peace as long as you stay in your lane. They offer you peace as long as you do what they ask. Their version of peace is just absence of conflict among men. And yet what you need to understand is that the peace that you need is peace with my Father. You will not be at peace with men. You will not be at peace with yourself until you have peace with my Father. And that peace must originate with him because you're rebels. You have sinned and you have rebelled against him. And the peace that my Father offers only comes from him. And when you have that peace, it's not tied up in circumstances. The world offers peace by promising they're going to fix your circumstances. You will follow after them. They will give you enough money. They will lead you to the right wife. They'll lead you to the right, lead you to the right church. It's all about fixing these external things, fixing these external circumstances. And Jesus says, no, I will give you the peace in the middle of all of it. That's the peace that comes when you're at peace with my Father. Even in the midst of the worst conflict of your life, you will find a peace which surpasses all understanding because I am the Prince of Peace. Because I bring to you the peace that only my Father can offer. That peace that is found in me. That peace that cannot be earned. I've got to imagine that there's some people either here in this room or, or joining us in their homes that you find a real absence of peace in your life right now. You watch the news and you hear what's happening in the world or even right there within your own household. It just doesn't look anything like peace. So dear friends, may I extend to you now the offer of peace. Peace that is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The same kind of peace that we see in three Hebrew boys dragged away into exile and thrown into a fiery furnace. A furnace so hot that if anyone would even come near it, they would be completely incinerated. And yet, after they're thrown into the furnace and the king listens for the cries, and he doesn't hear anything, there are no cries of sorrow, there are no wailings of pain. He goes over and he looks in, and this is what we read. He declares to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and they said to the king, it's true, O king. So he answered and said, but I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And their appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The same kind of peace that we see in a man like Balthazar Hubmeyer, a reformer, an Anabaptist, a man that would be tortured and lay down his life for the sake of clinging to the gospel. Peace, peace. In the middle of torture and torment. Peace in the middle of a lion's den. Peace in the middle of a jail. Peace while exiled to an island. Peace while flayed alive. Peace while set on fire. Peace while crucified. Peace while crucified upside down. Peace while you don't have a place to lay your head. 
Peace while you don't have a dollar to your name. Peace. In all times, peace. Was it peace because they just knew about God? Was it peace because they just knew about Jesus? Was it peace because they had believed this gospel intellectually? It was peace because of the one that was with them in the circumstance. Peace that comes when Jesus joins you there in your locked room. I think that's where we've gotten it twisted. We think that it's all about head knowledge. If I can learn enough about who Jesus is, then maybe I can capture some of this peace. And what he says is, no, peace only comes when I come to you. Peace comes wherever I am found. That I will be with you in the fire. Literal fire. Melt your face off fire. I'll be with you in that peace. I don't just stand on the outside and go, be peaceful, man. I come to you in that fire. I come to you in that locked room. I come to you on that island. I come to you in that fight with your wife. I come to you when you open your bank account again on Monday morning and find you're overdrawn. I come to you in that moment. I'm with you in that moment. And that's where the peace comes. That's the peace that Jesus offered. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. You see, peace was free, but it cost him greatly. Truly, truly, the peace that we enjoy was because of the punishment that was upon him. So he showed them. He showed them. You want to know how I can offer you this peace? Here, here, look. See, we're right to understand that we can't be at peace with God. It's right. That's the beginning of the gospel. It's the understanding that if God is there, he cannot be pleased with me. I've lived as a rebel. I've spit in his face. I've blasphemed his name. Even worse than that, I've claimed his name and then gone out and lived like the rest of the world. So it's right for us to stand there and tremble and know there's no way that I could be at peace with this God. But praise him that he saw fit to pour out the punishment that was due us on his son. And his son comes and he stands there and he says, you want to see the cost of peace? Look. Look to me. There you will have the assurance that the cost of peace, the price of peace has been paid. And not only that, but it's evidence that my father's wrath has been fulfilled. It's evidence that the price that I paid was enough. Look at me. That the peace I extend to you now is not based on the value of your life. It's not based on the, on the power of your obedience. It's based on my death. And to prove that my death was enough, that I am enough, look at my hands. Look at my side. Again, I think that's where we get it all twisted. We start looking at our own circumstances and looking at our life and trying to determine, can I be at peace with God? Stop and look at the sun. That's the basis of your peace. Quit trying to grade yourself. Quit trying to be the judge. Quit trying to earn your own peace. He said his son's death is enough. When his son hung there on the cross and he said it is finished, he didn't just mean his life. He meant everything that needed to be done to purchase peace. It is done. So now he stands there and he says, look, look. And That's what we try to do every Sunday morning when we, or each of those times when we come to the Lord's table, when we take communion together. Spiritually, we are looking at Jesus' body. We're looking at his blood. It's meant to be a reminder for us. Look here and find your peace. Be reminded here of your peace. But sometimes we just go through the motions. Instead, we walk down this aisle and we wonder about how unworthy we are. You see, that's 
That's the real tragedy of sin in the life of a believer. Is it's tools in the hands of the enemy. That when we live like the rest of the world and we live as sinners, we continue to live the same filthy, depraved lives that we lived before we followed Jesus Christ, that the enemy can take those and he can beat you about the head and say, see, he can't love you. See, he can't offer you peace. He tries to rob you of the assurance that you have peace with God. And so I say, quit looking at yourself and look to him. Look to the Savior. Look to see what he did. Then the disciples, they were glad when they saw the Lord. Understatement of the century. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent you, excuse me, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So what do we do now? What do we do now? Okay, Jesus, we're now at peace. We're at peace with the Father. We're at peace with you. You're offering us that peace. Now what are we supposed to do with this peace? And he says, even if the Father is sending me, I am sending you. How did the Father send him? To seek and save the lost. The same way that the Father has sent the Son, the Son is now sending us. That's the purpose. That we would go out and glorify God by extending, by offering this very same peace to others. By pointing them, by directing their eyes. I can just imagine us running around on the, on the streets and almost just grabbing people by the head and just, just fighting them to force their eyes. Look at Jesus. Will you just look at him? Instead, we all walk around with this mirror in front of us. Just, just look at him. That that's the call on our lives, to go out and do this. To faithfully represent him. And that's where the obedience comes in. That as we live lives of obedience and purity and power, that it's then that we shine like a light and that that light glorifies our Father in heaven. That our lives give evidence that this gospel that we preach, that it is true. We live desperately not wanting to disqualify ourselves. Not wanting to ruin our witness. Listen, God's going to save who God's going to save. But may we never be disqualified. May we never be called to sit on the sideline. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what... When we studied, when we went back and we studied in the beginning of Mark, when we studied John the Baptist, we, we talked about the fact that we've got to be very careful about taking these unique times in the history of the church and trying to apply them universally to forever. And I would think that three days after the crucifixion of the Son of God, on the day of his resurrection, I think that qualifies as a unique time. I don't think that what God was doing here was setting a pattern for all the church for all time. And I also think that we can pretty safely say that these men did not receive the Holy Spirit at this time, at least not the indwelling, never-leaving, truly empowering Holy Spirit, the way they would 50 days later on the day of Pentecost. That there at Pentecost, we, we see it visibly and we hear it, the roaring winds and the tongues of fire that come to rest upon them. But what he's doing here is he's, he's prefiguring. He's giving them a, a, a foretaste of what's to come. As the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them for this thing that he's called them for. You can't do this on your own. And again, what did I tell you? When is peace found? Where is peace found? It's found when Jesus comes to you. Well, Jesus was leaving. So what now? So if you look in John's gospel again, flip backwards to verse 14. The, the, the famous, I am the way, the truth, and the life um, portion of scripture from Jesus. And you look in the 15th verse, verse 15 through 18. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He doesn't come to us physically any longer. Jesus took his resurrected body and he headed back to be with the Father. And he was there interceding on our behalf. They're speaking to the Father on our behalf. And yet what he promises is, I will come to you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's what he's showing them there, but it's a breathing. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's how Jesus comes to us today. He didn't come to us physically. His body's in heaven, but he comes in his Holy Spirit. And he comes and he's with you in those times. He's with you in those fires. He's with you in those trials. That's the promise that he's extending to him now. And that when he comes to you, you are then equipped to go do what he calls you to do next. He never calls us to go do anything without empowering us for that without equipping us for that. There's never a day in the life of a believer when you gotta wake up and say, I gotta do something I can't do. Because you can't do squat. You can't cause your heart to beat. You can't cause your brain to fire. So you trust that if he's gonna call you to do these things, he's gonna equip you to do these things. And the thing that he's calling you to do here, it requires the Holy Spirit. And so he's promised them this. And the imagery is beautiful because God's breath has always been a creative force. It's always been a thing which created. In Psalms 33, we read this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all the hosts. That when God breathes, balls of fire form. So hot that if you were to come within three million miles, you would melt into a pile of nothing. That's the power of God's breath. And not only is it a creative force, but it's a life-giving force. I wonder when God is going to, it seems like every single sermon, we come together here and I'm back to the Garden of Eden and talking about the formation of man. But that's it, right? He forms the man out of the dust. He leans down and <sighs> breathes life. So he's showing them here, the same breath, the same breath of God which forms stars and elephants and mountains and the earth and everything that you've ever known also breathes life. It imparts to you life and my presence that will come and indwell you and it will never leave you, will never leave you as an orphan. And so at this moment, what do we have? Jesus has come, and he's in them. He's in, he's in their midst. He's in their presence. He's bringing with them peace. He's calling them to a plan, to a purpose, to go out and to share the gospel. He's given them the power to go out and do this. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. Has there ever been a verse more badly abused than this? Dear friends, no one has the right to forgive sins but God alone. We read about that when Jesus healed the paralytic. The scribes and the religious leaders, they rightly said, who can forgive uh, sins but God alone? Because all sins are ultimately against God. All sins are ultimately against God, and only God has the authority and the power to forgive sins. What Jesus is saying here is, you want to know where forgiveness comes from, look here the hole in my side the holes in my hands this is the cost of forgiveness this is where forgiveness is found and now you as my people us as his people as you go out in the world and you proclaim this message in the power of my holy spirit equipped with my word as you go out there in the world and you proclaim this message and you take people by the head and you turn their eyes towards me the only place in which forgiveness can be found in the authority of my name, you tell them, there is your forgiveness. So that those that claim his name, those that turn from their sin and trust in me, 
you can give them assurance that forgiveness is found. Those that do not, you can warn them with my very same authority that they are unforgiven. He's saying, not that we have the right to go around and determine, I can forgive this sin. Not that bad. I can't forgive this one. Pretty stinky. He's saying, no. The forgiveness of sin has always been found in God. And it's offered through his son. So you go out and you preach his son. And you can promise people, in my name, you can promise people that if they will trust in my son, they will find forgiveness. And you can warn them that if they will not trust in my son, they will find no forgiveness. It goes on, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he has said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Good old Thomas, ever the pessimist. And like, where'd he go? Was he out for a smoke or what was he doing? Like, how do you just leave? But he wasn't there. And so he says, I won't believe it until I see it. Or more specifically, I won't believe it until I touch it. I won't, I won't believe it until I put my hands in there. And apparently the testimony of the others wasn't enough. And we, I don't know that we can blame him, right? Like they didn't believe the women. So we're all even Stephen here, right? He said, I, don't, I won't believe it. I won't believe it until I see it. Verse 26. So eight days later, his disciples were inside again. They're still hiding out because again, the Holy Spirit has not come upon them in the power that it would. So they're still there and they're still hiding out. And Thomas was with them. He wasn't going to miss out this time, okay? Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. It's deja vu, right? The same thing. He's back there, went right back through the walls again, or whatever he did. He showed up, and again, he's offering them peace. He says, Peace be with you. And then Thomas, excuse me, then he says to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. It's a good place to start. These powerful confessions, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Dear friends, be of good courage. There is surely no shortage of people gathered together as we are with incredible doubts. You want to believe. I promise you Thomas wanted to believe. Thomas didn't want to believe that he had gave his, given his life to a farce. He didn't want to believe that he was still lost in his sins. He didn't want to believe that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He wanted to believe. I promise you this dude wanted to believe. But he had doubts. So Jesus comes to him because God's not afraid of your doubts. He welcomes your doubts. So you come to him and you say, I, I, need, I need proof here. He knows our weakness. He says, fair enough. Fair enough, dear Thomas. Give me your hands. Place them here. Place them here. Quit beating yourself up over your doubts and take them to the person that can do something about it. You go to God. You say, God, I want to believe. More desperately than anything, I want to believe. God, see what it looks like for these other people that believe. They got peace. They got joy. They've got lies that look the way I'd like my life to look. But God, I just can't believe. I've got my doubts. He isn't afraid. He says, come to me with your doubts. He's not going to send his son physically. He's going to send his spirit. Do you know why Jesus allowed Thomas to put his fingers here and to put his hand here? It wasn't just for Thomas. It was for you. It was for me. That's the evidence. So we're joined together when we see ourselves like Thomas, when we see ourselves in our doubts, when we see ourselves hiding in an upper room, we can look to the stories that we find in his word. 
A powerful testimony of His Word. Filled with His Spirit that brings us to an understanding and a belief in His Word. And it's almost as if we ourselves are sticking our hand into His side. He's saying, here is your evidence. Here is your evidence. Well, we need to know this Word and cling to this Word. It's the evidence of who He is. It's the evidence that He's alive. Don't take my word for it. So he's saying, I welcome your doubts. I'm not afraid of your doubts. You think God's afraid of your doubts? You think he doesn't know about them because you don't vocalize them? So that's my encouragement to you this Easter. You find yourself lacking peace. Whatever the reason you lack peace is. If it's that you lack peace because you are so wrapped up in your own sin and your own depravity and your own circumstances, stop. Look at Christ. Look at the resurrected Son of God. Don't trust because of your own abilities. Trust because of Him. If you find yourself, even in looking at Him, you find yourself still wrapped up in doubts, wanting to believe but unable to believe. Dear friends, take those to God. He welcomes you. Honest, open, doubts. He welcomes you. And then trust that He will send His Son. He will send his Holy Spirit to meet you right there, wherever you are. You don't have to clean up the house. You don't even have to unlock the door. He will come and he will meet you right there in the middle of that fire. And you will find yourself dancing as one dancing with the Son of God while everything around you burns to the ground. That is the peace that Jesus offers you today. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we are not a people that deserves peace. We spend so much time trying to manufacture just some, it's, a, it's fool's gold. That, that we, read, we read this wisdom of the world that tells us that we just got to learn to, we just got to learn to love ourselves. <laughs> or we just got to learn to forgive ourselves. Because, Father, the world wants us to be focused on us. That's the work of the enemy. Yet, Father, we know that in the middle of that, you just say, stop, stop, stop. Forgiveness doesn't rest with you. Peace doesn't rest with you. Turn your eyes and fix them on my son, Jesus Christ. Behold the holes in his hand. Behold the hole in his side. Behold the one that has laid down his life for you. And trust that he is enough. I tell you now that my wrath has been satisfied. And that if you would only trust in him, you will find forgiveness. You will find peace. Father, help us to cling to that message. Help us to stop playing these games. Father, we want to see you glorified. So as we continue to worship this morning. Would the songs that we sing be pleasing to your ears? Would you be glorified? It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen.